1: Please join me in standing for the reading of God's word. We are going to begin in Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. We will read verses 1 and parts of verse 2, and then we're going to skip down to verse 6. And I'm going to take a swig of water. Hold on. Same, and we have it. Okay. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, How have you loved us? Now let's go down to verse 6. A son honors his father, and slaves honor their master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? Amen. I'd like to use as a thought for today, forget me not. Like the flower, like the poem, forget me not. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, this is your time. This is your moment, oh God. I am merely a vessel. I am merely an instrument, a tool, a servant for you to use, God. I decrease so that you will increase, oh God. Heavenly Father, your people are waiting to hear from you, Jesus. You have a word for them, oh God. And So I pray, oh God, that your words of life will touch the hearts of those assembled here today. I pray, Lord God, that there will be transformation. I pray that there will be deliverance and healing. And I pray, Lord God, that as I minister this word, oh God, that I realize I do it in no one's power but yours. I need help. So God, stand tall in this assembly today. Stand tall, Lord God, in our lives. Stand tall in our minds. Stand tall. In our hearts, oh God, we're eager to hear from you, Jesus. So have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Y'all have to excuse me. I love my grandmother's photo albums. Some in my family might say I'm obsessed. (laughs) More times than not, when Yvonne and I go to Orangeburg to visit loved ones and we happen to go to Grandma's house, I find my way to her collection of photo albums and I flip through each and every volume, even if they're the same ones I just looked at during a previous visit. (laughs) To me, the repetition doesn't matter. I like remembering. I love asking who's this and what was happening there. And I enjoy finding snapshots of my own childhood and upbringing creating an opportunity for me to reminisce on what seemed like simpler times. And I'm sure I'm not alone. Remembering is an innate part of the human experience. We want to remember. We have to remember. We take photos to remember special moments with loved ones. We buy souvenirs when we go on trips. So during the more mundane aspects of everyday life, we can recall the excitement and joy we felt while we were away they're gone. We memorialize our loved ones in cemeteries, in urns, or maybe with tributes on social media to ensure that their memory and impact live on. These artifacts that I've just listed, photos, memorials, souvenirs, are tools that we use to help us summon what scientists and psychologists call explicit memories. Mm -hmm. These memories are stored in three areas of your brain and are episodic and events based in nature. They're centered on experiences and require a conscious effort on our part to recall the information. This is different than implicit memories. That's information that you can recall without effort because it's just there. They can be procedural or task based in nature such as driving a car. Chances are those of us who drive regularly when we get behind the wheel We don't have to work hard to figure out how to drive this car. We just know how to do it because we've done it so many times. Both explicit and implicit memories are important. But today we're focused more on explicit memories because they require work. Explicitly remembering things helps to anchor us. It reminds us of who we are. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us connected to people and to ourselves even. And in the same way, explicitly remembering can keep us connected to our God I submit to you today that God is concerned about your ability to explicitly remember not just the nostalgic stuff not just the stuff that fills you with the warm and fuzzies God wants us to remember him who he is what he's done and who he's been I dare to say That your explicit memory can be an additional tool in your spiritual arsenal that can help you weather and overcome the storms, struggles, and challenges of life today if you can summon the memory of what God did for you yesterday. It's a simple idea that's hard to practice. In our fast-paced society, we are constantly moving forward, always searching for what's next. What awaits me in the new year? How will I be delivered from this latest trial? When is the change in my circumstance coming? I'm not saying these are bad things to ponder. We absolutely should be invested in what God is doing in the here and now. But I believe that there is immense spiritual benefit to looking back and remembering how God moved in yesteryear so that it might inform how you stand amid the storms of today. It may look or sound something like this. God, I don't see any way out of this right now, but I remember how you lifted me from the Fowler snare all those years ago. Lord, I feel stuck and overwhelmed, but I remember how you moved on my behalf back then. Jesus, I don't know what to do, but I remember what happened the last time I called your name. Yes, my friends, you've got to remember And while your capacity to remember brings spiritual blessings and benefit, it is also a spiritual mandate. In Psalm 103, verse 2, the psalmist writes, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Deuteronomy 8, 18, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Remember the former things of long ago. I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. First Chronicles 16, 12. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. I could go on and on, but the point is this. It is both essential and required that we remember the Lord our God. And just to make this point as crisp and clear as possible, I'm not just talking about you remembering to pray over your meal today. I'm not just talking about you remembering to say thank you, God, for another day. Those are important parts of spiritual discipline. You should keep doing that for sure. But today I'm talking about remembering God in the expression of his goodness, the fullness of his glory, and the essence of his character. I'm talking about an active practice, not passive recollection like implicit memory that's stored in your brain, but an explicit memory, which involves you consciously recording calling how present and good God's been in the context of your everyday life. I'm talking in moments and events and experiences. That way when life does its best lifing, when the enemy wages a campaign of oppression to wear you out, you have the memory of God moving on your behalf to grab hold of so that you may be able to stand. And after you've done everything, you stand. Brothers and sisters, in this year of making application, it is paramount that we take steps to explicitly remember our God in these trying and perilous times. Let's turn to the text to understand why. In Malachi chapter one, the author invites us to take a look at a people whose collective memory is fuzzy and whose capacity to explicitly remember has faltered. In this text, we eavesdrop on two feuding parties. On one side is Elohim, the maker of heaven and earth, God from everlasting to everlasting, who's long-suffering, compassionate, and slow to anger. We know Elohim. On the other side are his chosen people, Israel, These are the people he delivered from Egyptian bondage, whom he kept in the wilderness, for whom he dispatched judges and prophets, priests, and kings, the people he preserved in exile, when their rampant idolatry warranted the deconstruction of their national identity and conquest at the hands of vicious enemies like Assyria and Babylon. These are the same people to whom God promised restoration, the same people he eventually returned to their homeland. One would think That after all that, things should be copacetic between God and Israel. Shortly after everything they've been through together, after all the highs and lows, the ins and outs of their relationship, nothing could possibly divide God and Israel now. And yet, in the first few verses of Malachi, God levels an incriminating accusation against his people. They do not recall how much God actually loves him. And how do the people respond? Not with contrition. Not with repentance, not even with understanding. They doubt him. They question him. They deny their wrongdoing and throw it back in God's face. Many biblical scholars agree that Malachi, whom we know very little about, penned his writings many years after the children of Israel returned to their homeland following Babylonian exile. That means he likely prophesied during the time when the Persians ruled the promised land which also means that the Jews were experiencing a bit of a comeback. This nation that had been scarred, scattered, and seared by the trauma of being dragged from their home country and subjugated by enemies who tortured, abused, and systematically oppressed and assimilated them was now in the process of being rebuilt, reshaped, and restored. By the time Malachi began prophesying, the second temple of Jerusalem had been reconstructed. The people's symbolic center of national worship and pride was back. And this ornate representation of God's favor towards the Israelites gleamed in the dawning of a new era. Supposedly, as time went on, the people indeed returned to worshiping in the temple, but their worship was empty and thoughtless. The priests offered ritual sacrifices, but they were detestable. And undesirable in God's sight. Instead of following the rules and edicts established centuries earlier in the Mosaic Law, priests offered unclean, diseased, and injured animals on God's altar. People showed up for worship, but it was religious and rote. They sought the blessings of God, but they only showed him apathy and disinterest in return. God was no longer their priority. Israel was no longer interested in liturgical duty or pious obedience. They were complacent, they were careless, they were forgetful. If we keep reading in Malachi, we find a dialogue happening. God takes up a charge against his people, such as in verse 6, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. And the people respond with a question, how have we shown contempt for your name? This isn't mere curiosity, it's actually defiance. Then the Lord answers them, like in verse 7 when he says, by offering defiled food on my altar. And then the people respond, how have we defiled you? As the conversation continues, the people respond to God's charges with accusations all their own, such as, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. They scornfully ask, where is the God of justice? These are the words of people who are tired of being accused, so they arrogantly and foolishly turn their accusations back on God. They challenge him. They question his loyalty. They question his love. They question his character. As one commentary writer puts it, Israel's defense was their greatest offense. They are spiteful and they have strayed so far away from who they were generations ago. When you think about the full spectrum of the relationship between God and Israel as unveiled in Scripture, The nation's resentful posture in this passage becomes all the more sad and ironic. After all, Israel had the benefit of a lengthy history with God. From exodus to exile and beyond, they had extensive communal, spiritual, and religious record of Elohim, that is God, calling them, caring for them, rescuing and delivering them from crisis after crisis. God was the center of their national and cultural identity. God was their reason for existing. But now they are here, resentful, angry, and basically asking the Lord, well, what have you done for us, really? My friends, the haughtiness displayed by God's chosen people illustrates the consequence of forgetting who he is, what he's done, and what he means to us. This is the folly of allowing circumstances, hardships, and challenges of today overshadow the record of what God did and promised yesterday. Israel failed to remember the goodness of their God. Oh, but they did remember some things. They remembered the pain. They remembered the suffering. They remembered the bad that happened to them in exile. But they did not remember the God who kept them in the midst of it all. You may be tempted to think this assessment of Israel's failure is harsh or unfair. After all, the ancient Israelites comprised millions of people who lived over hundreds of years. The people living in Malachi's time are centuries removed from the Exodus. They weren't there. They didn't see the Red Sea part. They never saw Canaan. They've only heard stories of Israel's prominence during the reign of King David. How could they possibly be held accountable for forgetting and not taking hold of things they never experienced? It's simple. As a nation, as a people, God told them to remember, period. Let's travel back in time a few centuries before the people were ever exiled. Join me, if you will, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 so we can set the scene. Don't worry about reading any verses just yet. I'll let you know when we reach that point. Scene setting, Deuteronomy 6. After wandering in the wilderness for nearly 40 years, the children of Israel are finally preparing to enter the promised land. But the assembly that gathers in this passage isn't composed of the same people who God delivered from Egypt. That generation died in the wilderness. This is a generation that was born in the desert. These are the heirs of the promise. As Moses passes the torch of leadership to Joshua before he takes his eternal rest, he addresses this second generation of desert refugees. He bestows them with a second reading of the law. That is literally what the word Deuteronomy means. It's translated in Hebrew as second law. But this wasn't a new law. It was a repetition of the same law that had been given to their parents and grandparents. with a few points for elaboration. The, this generation needed to be brought up to speed before entering the land flowing with milk and honey. They needed to know what God had done for their people lest they grow complacent. But not just what he had done, but also who he was to their people. God needed to be real for them. Because God knows how fickle and fragile we are, he understands that if we fail to remember, inevitably, we will go astray. We will get distracted. We will get overwhelmed. And we will grow resentful. God wants us to remember him. He makes that clear through Moses, starting in verse 6. Follow me there. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Key words in that passage, do not forget the Lord, do not forget. Forget the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is concerned about us not forgetting. He wants us to remember so that when we go to our large cities we did not build, we know it was Him who got us there. He wants us to remember so that when our houses are filled with all kinds of good things, we know it was He who provided. He wants us to remember. So that when we draw water from wells, we did not dig and we sup on grapes and olives from vineyards and groves we did not plant. We will lavish praise on he who satisfies our mouths with good things. Let me frame this in a contemporary context. Remember God when the house you prayed for finally closes, when the career you wanted becomes yours, when the business you've built takes off, when the degree is in hand, when the baby is born, when the book is published, and when the calling is confirmed, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. Don't forget who owns the cattle upon a thousand hills. Don't forget who's your source and your provider. The good things in our lives, we did not manifest them. God did. And anything we spoke in faith was the result of a deposit he made in our spirits to confirm the plans he already established for our lives. And for those of us who think forgetting God doesn't apply to us because we know God, we have a relationship with Him, I invite you to consider the cautionary tale of King Asa, pious, righteous ruler of Judah, King Asa destroy a Cushite army of at least a million with an army of 300,000, King Asa. Initiate a nationwide spiritual reform that saw him dismantle idols and depose his own pagan grandmother, King Asa. This same King Asa, whose scripture says in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 17, had a heart that was fully committed to the Lord. Later in his life, removed treasures from the temple of God and offered them to a pagan king in a bid to form a political alliance. He imprisoned a prophet who confronted him about trusting the king instead of trusting the Lord, and he later died of a foot disease. His beginning was glorious, but his ending was shameful. Something happened to change Asa from the Asa who trusted the Lord for victory in 2 Chronicles 15 to the Asa who trusted in a man in 2 Chronicles 16. The Bible doesn't offer insight into what that thing was, but I will venture to say that Asa forgot something, and it can happen so easily. For Israel, it took a couple hundred years of bitter strife, conquest, and loss to transform God's chosen people into God's forgetful and resentful people. And for Asa, it didn't take nearly as long. He died when he was 62. This same affliction of forgetfulness rages through the body of Christ today. People are falling away from the faith in droves. Praising the universe is more appealing than praising the God who made it. Some would rather pray over a crystal and put faith in an herb than call upon the name of the Lord in whom we live, move, and have our being. And folks who once claimed Christ but have since renounced him are quick to suggest that their own conversion was the mere byproduct of dopamine in their brains and cultural immersion. They were raised that way, that way. Therefore, they believed that way until they were exposed to something new. They forgot and none of us is immune. Life gets hard, and our minds get cluttered, and before we know it, God goes from being the captain of our ship to a a passenger in third class. He becomes a footnote in our story, so much so that we give him the crumbs of our hearts instead of the full course meal, a passing thought here or there instead of what he actually requires, which is our all. Please understand this, this is not merely hyperbole or speculation on my part. I've been on the verge of this kind of forgetfulness, but God snatched me back. But I've seen it happen in the lives of many other believers who are now unsure if they believe at all. They have forgotten. How can we avoid getting to this place where like Israel and like Asa, we've forgotten who God is? How do we make sure that in the face of our own bitter strife, conquest, and loss. We don't forget the Lord who's on our side and we remain steadfast and faithful even when the trials are at their most severe. There are three things we can do. None of these are groundbreaking. Some of you may actually feel like this is elementary, but I urge you to see how profoundly powerful they are in their simplicity. I need a drink. Hold on. Okay, number one, consult God's record often. Before scribes transcribed the divinely inspired words of God onto parchment, ancient Jews learned about Yahweh and his relationship to their people via oral transmission. They told each other stories. They didn't have a Bible to consult, so the Jews verbally communicated the consistent and cohesive story of God and their ancestors to each other. They pass it down from generation to generation, stories of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. They use songs and poems and other mnemonic devices that made it easier to commit these stories to memory. And those stories were preserved among their people, keeping them connected to their culture, their faith and the center of their faith, God. By the time the first five books of the Bible were actually written down, many Jews could fully recite them from memory. They knew the stories because of their oral tradition and cultural commitment to remembering. Although this level of memorization is not common for us today we can rejoice in the fact that we've got it easier than they do. We have the full canon of scripture from beginning to end. We know how the story began, and we know how it's going to end. We have access to multiple translations, languages, versions, and even paraphrases of the Bible. We have the most comprehensive record of who God is and what he's said and done now that at any other point in history. And within this record, we find accounts of God's interactions with people who were just like us, broken, fragile, helpless, lonely, depressed, angry, bitter, hopeful, faithful, lost. We get firsthand details of his character, love, power, and faithfulness. These aren't merely stories for us to ooh and awe at. What God did for David, Rahab, and Moses, he absolutely can and will do for us. These people were not exceptions, they were examples. What Red Seas need to be parted in your life? What Jerichos do you need to come tumbling down? What Goliaths do you need to be slain? Find the template, find the answer, find the solution in the record, in the word of God. But to know and understand this, you have to actually consult the record. You have to do just what God instructed the prophet Ezekiel to do, eat your scroll. Get in the word of God, consume it. You may not be a reader, that's okay. Find the audio Bible. You may not have a propensity to stare into a big book and study for hours on end, that's okay too. Find study guides that adapt to your learning style. You may not even know how to study scripture, that's all right, let us help you. Here's a quick side note and a shameless plug. Not everyone processes and retains information the same way. Neurodiversity is a thing. Our brains are wired differently. So let's find different ways to teach and study the text that incorporate multiple learning styles and help each other actually study. And here's the plug. We've experienced, uh, we've experimented with this communal approach in our Thursday night Bible study class. That means together, we've dissected a passage of scripture, we've dug into commentaries, we've consulted concordances, and we've studied Bible maps as a unit. That way, when we're doing our own individual studying, we've got a template to follow and tools and methods to implement. It makes a difference. You don't have to be a young adult. Any size adult is fine. Join us. The side note is over, but it still feeds into the main point, which is that we must imbibe the word of God however we can. Videos, podcasts, whatever way you consume content, consume the Bible. Consult the record and learn just what God has done. Number two, write stuff down. The God we serve isn't just active in the annals of scripture. He's active in our everyday lives. When we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're indwelled by his Holy Spirit. The God of the universe lives in each and every believer, giving us a front row seat to the majesty of our king and direct access to power, encouragement, conviction, and more. All that adds to God using us as his vessels to accomplish his plans on earth. And because he loves us, those plans oftentimes benefit us in the long run too, even if in the short short term, they come with testing and trials. When God moves on your behalf in a situation, when he does something that amazes you, surprises you, leaves you speechless, I encourage you, write it down, create your own record. Taking note of the details of God's activity in your life helps you commit it to memory, but it also gives you something to look back on. You can do this in a journal, in the notes app on your phone, as a voice memo, as a video. I don't care, the point is record it. Every so often, I'll go back to old sermon notebooks and review my notes from years ago. They remind me of where I was then, what I was going through at the time, and how the Holy Spirit ministered to me in that particular situation. Oftentimes, the words of life he spoke to me then come screeching back into my mind, encouraging me in the here and now. Don't rely on your memory by itself without putting in some work. Memory is elusive. Depending on your age, your health, and a number of other psychological and environmental factors, your memory may not be what it used to be. Things you once recalled with vivid clarity get a little cloudy. Details of certain events might get a little skewed. You may remember something differently than everyone else. So it's best for us to write down the moments with God when they're fresh and at their most profound. They may bless us decades down the line. Number three, shift your focus. In the context of our humanity, remembering is not always a good experience. Sometimes memory feels like a curse. Things that you would rather forget, like trauma, tragedy, pain and loss, never leave you. In fact, a lot of those memories are triggered by innocuous things like a smell or a song or a place. They follow you. They may keep you up at night, affect how you relate to other people, or just make you plain fearful. Our humanity holds on to bad and hurtful things, and that makes sense. Our human nature, our flesh, is inherently corrupted and broken. It does not want to forget the bad. It seeks to only discharge the good. I think about it like food sugar and carbs stay with you a lot longer than leafy greens and grains to the point they can change the makeup and composition of your body affecting your weight your blood and your heart bitterness anxiety and shame fueled by painful memories do the same to your soul and spirit why does God allow this If we're new creatures in Christ, if old things have passed away, why must we continue to endure the pain of bad memories? Why doesn't God just clean them out like he cleans the bad out of our spirits? I'm not God, so I don't know the answer. But I do have two thoughts on the matter. One, bad memories, as painful as they are, keep us safe. The memory of the pain, the trauma, the tragedy can help you maneuver your life in a way That amounts to healthy self-preservation the trick is not allowing them to become so overwhelming that they cripple you in your life the second and most pertinent thought to our discussion today is this perhaps god's will for us in our memory has less to do with us dwelling on the misery and more to do with us remembering what he did in through and for us in the midst of it perhaps his aim for us is to shift our focus away from the hurt And onto him. Maybe the memories are intended to prompt praise instead of pain. I'm not saying we should diminish trauma. And I'm certainly not saying it's easy to deal with. Bad things have happened to you. And they can very well inform how you navigate your life. You should seek guidance from the Holy Spirit and professional help from a counselor or therapist to help you cope with what you've experienced. What I am saying, however, is that trauma doesn't have to win. It doesn't get the final say. Yes, people hurt you, but how did God help you? You were lost and alone, but how did God come alongside you and redirect you? You made bad mistakes and did shameful things, but how did God restore and transform you? Shift your focus. Like everyone else, I too have experienced and done things that scar my memories. They have the potential to make me feel like dirt. I used to say that if Paul was cheap among sinners, I must be second in command. But I've learned to stop letting the wounds of yesterday cloud the purpose of today. The painful memories may never go away, but they no longer have power over me. The past can only hurt me if I let it. When my flesh tries to remind me of how depraved I've been, I instead choose to remember how God picked me up and washed me clean. When my mind wants to take me back to that time when I did that thing, I instead choose to reminisce on how Christ saved me from drowning deep in sin. When my heart wants to recall the wrongs I've been dealt at the hands of other people, I choose to recall instead how God delivered me from the hands of my enemies, even if my enemy was myself. I choose to shift my focus away from what hurt me and to the one who helped me. And in doing so, when times are hard, when the storms are raging, when it feels like pain is my portion, I instead remember the radical, unmatched grace and goodness of my God. Some of us are still paying an emotional and mental tax of what Jesus already paid for in full. But I pray that these words encourage you today. You don't have to be beholden to your past. The memories of yesterday don't have to keep afflicting you today. Yes, it happened. Yes, you did it. Yes, it stings. Yes, you feel shame. But remember what God did in Christ when he took your shame away. Remember the power and purpose of that bloody and rugged cross when Jesus bore the iniquities of all mankind. God made he who had no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. No, that doesn't give us an excuse to sin. No, that doesn't absolve us from accountability. And no, it certainly doesn't make us perfect. We will miss the mark and need to confess and repent again. But the atoning sacrifice of Christ at Calvary gives us permission and the right to walk in a manner worthy of a calling to which we have been called. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul writes that once we were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But in verse 22, he continues, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you've placed your faith in christ you ought not walk around as someone condemned but instead as someone who's a citizen of the kingdom pardoned of the deadly consequence of sin reconciled to god and imputed with his righteousness learn to forgive yourself just as god in christ jesus forgave you He loves you, and no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Remember that he's made you blameless in his sight. In closing, I don't know what awaits any of us this year, but I do know this bad things are going to happen. You will face trials. You will face challenges. Some of you this year have already faced things that feel insurmountable. I'm not trying to be a negative, Ned. I'm just being real. Jesus tells us in John 16, that in this world we've had tribulation, but to be of good cheer for he's overcome the world. In 1 Peter 4, 12, we're encouraged to not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us, but to rejoice in as much as we participate in the sufferings of Christ. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes to his young protégé that all who live godly will suffer persecution. Whether we like it or not, and I would wager that 99.99999% of us don't like it at all, it's a guarantee. Trouble and hard days are coming. But when they come, when it feels like you're in the pressure cooker, when you can't tell you're up from your down, know that you can make a choice to remember. Instead of being like Israel and becoming mad at God for what you've experienced, instead of being like Asa and turning back on God because he's not moving the way you want him to move, remember who God is to you. Remember what his record says about him. It's impeccable. Our God is undefeated. Remember your own history with the Lord. It's unique and personal, for he knew you before he formed you in in your mother's womb. He's the mighty warrior who saves, who takes great delight in you and rejoices over you with singing and remember to give God more credit and attention than you do your pain he has not left you comfortless but has given you his Holy Spirit trust him, know him, run to him in those hard moments don't forget God and in those good moments, don't forget God remember how he heard your cries and pitied every groan Remember that like Job, God knows the way that you take, and when he has tried you, you will come forth as gold. Remember that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore you, making you strong, firm, and steadfast. Remember how he came to your rescue when no one else could be found. Remember how he defended you when the enemy hemmed you in on every side. Remember that he's the shade at your right hand. Remember that his words are spirit and life. Remember that he's both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that where sin increases, grace increase all the more. Remember that no word of his ever returns to him void. That he, if he made a promise, he will fulfill it and it will come to pass. Remember that you were once a captive. He came to set you free and that he who the son sets free is free indeed. Remember that he's faithful even when you're faithless for he cannot disown himself and now you are his. Remember that he's Jehovah Shalom, the God of your peace. Remember that he's Jehovah Shama, the Lord who was there. Remember that he's Jehovah The the Lord mighty in battle. Remember that the Lord is the strength of your life and his power is made perfect in your weakness. Remember that he is the God of all comfort who loves you with an everlasting love. And if all these things fail you, if you can't recall a single one of them, remember that God remembers you, that he watches over his word to perform it, that just as he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, that just as he remembered the grief of Rachel and the cries of Hannah, that he he remembers you today. Don't forget the Lord and never feel that you are forgotten by our God. The Lord is concerned about your remembrance. Practice it. Keep what the Lord has done and said before you as often as you can. Give his word more acclaim than you give everything that's going wrong. And when you do remember, be confident in this no devil, no demon. No person can ever take away the memory of your experience with God. Don't let anything or anyone invalidate what God has done for you. I love a good apologetic discourse. We can have an intellectual joust about theology all day. I'm always down for a discussion that proves that God is real. But at the end of the day, if I need unequivocal proof that I know, that I know, that I know God is real, all I have to do is remember. Amen. Hallelujah. I remember how he lifted me. I remember how he changed me. I remember how he reformed me. I remember how he lifted me from the snare. I remember how he called me. I remember how he ministered to me. I remembered when he told me I am his. I remember. Remember. Don't forget. Don't forget the Lord today. He loves you with an everlasting love. Remember him. Amen. I'm done. I'm done. Hallelujah.
0: Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
1: Hallelujah. Glory to your name, Jesus. Glory to your name, oh God. I remember Jesus. I remember. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to your name, oh God. Oh, Jesus, you're worthy, God. You're worthy of Jesus, forget not all his benefits. Sing of his marvelous deeds and his mighty acts. Remember the Lord, remember him daily, hallelujah. You're gonna open the altar today. Maybe there are some things that you've experienced, some crises in your life today that you need to lay before the Lord, something that you need to come to him about, Let's do this together. The altar is open. I'm not gonna try and force your hand. If you, need to, if you need to lay something down, you know what that might be. The altar is open. We can spread out. We can practice social distancing. But let's intercede together. We are a family. I know altar calls can be intimidating. I know it can, be, it can feel embarrassing. Don't feel embarrassed. We all need help. I need help. I need to remember we love you Lord we love you Jesus hallelujah glory to your name glory to your name we remember help us remember Jesus Hallelujah. heavenly father we bless you Jesus we thank you for the ability to remember we thank you that we have your record that we can consult that we've seen the footprints of your influence and impact in our lives, oh God. We thank you that you are close to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. We thank you, oh God, that you are intimate. That you, oh God, are close to us, Lord Jesus. That you said you would never leave us and never forsake us, oh God. So even in the moments, where God, where we may have forgotten you, you have never forgotten us. For your word says that our names, O God, are etched in the palm of your hands. So we love you, oh Jesus. We come before you with humble hearts. We come before you, oh God, with contrition. We come before you, oh God, in earnest, Lord Jesus, in earnest, please, Lord God, asking you, Lord Jesus, to help us remember, bring back to our remembrance those things that we've forgotten. Grow us, oh God, Lord Jesus. Show us who you are, God. You are Jehovah, and we bless you, Lord God. Transform us. Reform us, O oh God. Whatever, Lord God, needs to be burned up, Lord Jesus, we place it before you today. Whatever needs to be sacrificed, O oh God, we place it before you today. Lord God, burn it up, Jesus. Burn it up, O oh God. And strengthen us, Lord Jesus. Our weak arms and our feeble knees. We cry, Lord God, and we cry out to you, Lord Jesus. We call upon the name of the Lord. And we commit to you today, or we recommit to you today, that we will remember we love you, Lord. We thank you in the mighty, the unstoppable, the beautiful, and the all-powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. There's one more invitation, and it's for those who may not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior whether you're in the sanctuary, whether you're online, we want to give you that opportunity today to make that commitment. Perhaps the words of the sermon stirred something in you, but maybe you can't quite relate. Maybe that personal relationship, maybe that doesn't click for you. Come today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So the altar is open for those who might be in the sanctuary. And if not, we can always, we will pray with those online I'm going to leave it open for a few minutes, moments. Will you come? Will you come? Hallelujah. If you are online and you are ready to make that decision, pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I recognize, oh God, that I need a savior. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you were buried, and that three days later, God rose you from the dead. I believe that you ascended, and you are now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. I confess with my mouth that, Jesus, you are Lord, I believe in my heart that you are resurrected, that you live, oh God. And I ask today that you would come into my heart. I ask today that you would come into my life, that you would become my personal Lord and Savior, that you would change me from the inside out. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Save me. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer in earnest, and it was an act of your will, you are saved. But now there's another thing you need to do. It's important that you grow in your salvation journey. It's important that you are what we call discipled, taught, led, guided. So find yourself to a Bible-believing church. People who will walk alongside you who will be a community for you, who will help you. There are a lot of things that are going to come up that you may not quite understand, but if you get connected to a church full of people who love the Lord and know him, they'll lead you in the right way. Amen. Amen. Amen.